the good thing about attachment, it's not like you're doomed. If you have one style, that's you're doomed to that style forever. You can always work towards becoming securely attached. But people who have an anxious attachment style aren't just going to wake up one day and be avoidant. You can have like avoidant tendencies here and there, but for the most part, you have that one attachment style. And then ideally, we're all working towards becoming securely attached. <laughs> everyone. Welcome back to the Girl We Grow Now podcast. Today, I am bringing you all an interview with Nina. So Nina is a therapist who specializes in anxiety, cultural identities, relationships, and self-love. You guys, this episode is so, so amazing. We literally go all over the place. We talk about anxiety, specifically high-functioning anxiety, how to cope with anxiety in the workplace, and anxiety in relationships relationships. We also dive into attachment styles. I love talking about attachment styles. I think it's so interesting and I love the way that Nina breaks it down for us. This episode is jammed packed with so many good tips and insight on just how we can continue our healing journey and just be the best versions of ourselves. So I'm so, so excited to share this episode with you guys. So without further ado, let's welcome Nina to the Girl Grow Now podcast. What is the best life advice that you have ever gotten that still sticks with you today? I was thinking about this one. This is hard, but I guess something that's probably like relatable across ages or regardless of what your situation is, is just like keep going even when it's a hard day. I think when we have particularly difficult days, we can get wrapped up in feeling like this is the worst I'll ever get. But there's this idea that, you know, life can be like 10 times better than what you're imagining it could be on a bad day. And and so you never really find out until you keep going. Mm, I really love that. That's a good piece of advice. I love that so much. Thanks. Yeah. You want to be here to see it. So for sure. I love that. Like, don't let that moment ruin your whole day. Yes. Yeah. Sit with it for a little bit. Give yourself some space to be upset about whatever. But you always have the shot to start over again the next day. So true. Love it. Yeah. Okay, before we get into the interview, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to becoming a therapist? Yeah, so a little bit about myself. Like I got my undergrad, my bachelor's degree in psychology, and then I ended up getting a master's in clinical mental health counseling, and I loved it. Majoring in psychology in undergrad, I think sometimes has like a, a negative connotation. I feel like a lot of times people are like, oh, it's like for kids who like don't know what else they're doing, which can sometimes be true. But I found that it really allowed me to explore like all the different areas that psychology can be applied to. Like there's so many different types, types that honestly, like I don't even really know about now. But while I was in school, I really decided that I was like, okay, like I think I want to be a therapist because I was always good at like talking to people. And I was like, how can I make that a career? I kind of did more exploration while I was in undergrad. I realized that research was not my favorite thing to do. And I enjoyed being a clinician. Like I liked clinical work. And so that sort of solidified for me that I was like, okay, therapy is what I want to do. And so then I started my master's program and it was amazing. Like it was such a good fit. And that's where I started working with clients for the first time. And that really sealed the deal for me. I was like, this is it. I'm going to be a therapist. I love that. And I love that you were able to find something that you're passionate about and turn it into your career. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think that's like the goal for most people. So I feel really lucky that I, I found something that really resonates with me. Yeah. And you found it pretty early on. So that's also like a good plus. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Because I feel like, I mean, some people 
struggle their whole lives trying to figure out what it is. So I definitely feel lucky to have found it as early as I did. Yeah. So a lot of people are struggling with anxiety. I feel like I've heard more about anxiety since the pandemic with all the isolation. So I really want to start there. Mm -hmm. What are some of your best methods to calm down your anxiety in the moment? So my go-to that I personally use and I literally like any of my clients that would be listening to this are going to be like, yeah, she makes us do this is like breathing. It sounds basic. And I think that that's one of the reasons why it puts a lot of people off. Because I feel like the number one thing that I hear all the time when I bring up like, hey, like, have you thought about breath work or proper breathing? People are like, well, I breathe all the time. Like, that's not necessarily (laughs) like something that I need to be taught how to do. But there is like a proper way to breathe. And especially when you are working on anxiety. So the main thing you want to focus on is diaphragmatic breathing or belly breathing because typically when we're just like going about our lives we tend to breathe fairly shallow so a lot of that stays in the chest but in order to activate the relaxation response one of the best things that you can do for yourself is just manage your breath so slowing it down trying to have deep breaths um, instead of the shallow chest breathing is my absolute go-to way to just calm down when you feel like you're starting to get to a point where you're having a lot of anxiety or if it even feels like it's starting to become an anxiety attack the second you notice those triggers in your body focus on your breath and almost use it like an anchor I love that. And I've heard that before. And it kind of reminds me in like movies when you see someone having an anxiety attack or panic attack, and then the other person puts their hand on their chest so that they can Mm -hmm. kind of match their heartbeat. But I think that's a really good one that we all underestimate. Yes. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, I think the reason I love it, it's free. It's not like you need anything crazy in order to be able to do it. You don't need to attend a billion different masterclasses. Like you can look up, the information is out there. You can look up a couple of videos on YouTube and just start practicing saying incorporating breath work into your day-to-day life. And the more you practice it, because I think that's the other thing too, is a lot of people wait until they're having a panic attack and then they're like, okay, let me try to use breath now. But it's not as easy when it's not part of your day-to-day life. So the more you practice it every day, the quicker you can call back to it when you are actually panicking and then it feels easier. That makes sense. So I know I was listening to a health professional talk about breathwork and incorporating it in their morning, Mm -hmm. I think it was morning or evening routine. And Mm -hmm. that's something I've been wanting to do. But I think they were saying go through that like eight rounds or something like that. But it makes a lot of sense because when we're panicking, it's going to be really hard to start something new that we're not really used to. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so at that point, because if you're panicking, like your brain is not thinking, oh, how do I properly breathe? What are the steps? So if you practice that, when you're not in a panic state, then when you actually are, you can call back on it, you already know what to do. Because at this point, it's a habit, it's something that you've worked on and developed and practiced. So it's much easier to call back on if you kind of know the basics. Makes so much sense. What are some tips we can use to manage anxiety, especially while working full time and when you just feel like it creeping up during yes. your work day? I feel like is a is a thing. Oh my gosh, yes, totally. <laughs> um, the biggest thing I'd say is knowing your limits. I think, especially when it comes to work. And I think given like American hustle culture, (laughs) we're always Mm -hmm. like, I can do more and more and more and more and more. Oh yeah, like I have room for that. I have space for that. Or, oh, I can like pencil that in. And obviously there's times where that's appropriate. But if you find yourself doing that all the time, your anxiety is naturally just going to shoot up because you're going to have so much more on your plate. So knowing your limits and then kind of going along with that, like knowing when to delegate, depending on the type of work that you do, ask for help when you need it. You don't need to be the one that's going to 
you know, fix everything or do everything. If you have a team, if you have people that you work with, no one to ask for help. So if it feels like there's too much, but you have to get all of this stuff done, is there anything on your plate that you can kind of ask someone else to do for you or, you know, get some advice on because that's just crushing. So yes. So my manager had that conversation with us recently about, you know, if we are feeling like our workload is overwhelming, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really up to us to advocate for ourselves and voice that because if not, people are just, they're not really going to know, especially like you said, with American hustle culture, Uh if you're not, if you're getting your work done, they're just going to think you can handle it all. So if you're not advocating for yourself, of course, I know there are some people who might not be in the healthiest of work environment. So it might be a little bit harder, but if you have that option, and you have an understanding manager, most of the Mm -hmm. time, they're going to be okay with you just speaking up. Totally. Yeah. And if your manager is upset with you for not breaking your back (laughs) at work, then that might mean that, hey, maybe this is like something to look at. Is this like the environment that I want to be a part of? Because if you're constantly expected to overextend yourself, then that says a lot more about the place that you work at than it does about you. So I think it gives us a little insight moment too. True. That is a very good point. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think another important thing too, like depending on like where you work or like what your job is like scheduling and breaks where you can practice breathing or, you know, other sort of coping mechanisms or just even just taking a second to relax. If you want to be incorporating breaks in, but you feel like it's difficult for you to do that when you're just like, go, go, go. It sounds almost silly, but even like in your calendar, scheduling in, okay, I'm going to put in like 15 minutes here where I can take a break, eat a snack, go to the bathroom, do whatever else it is I need to do. But having some things like time set aside in your day for you to be able to take a break and relax instead of just going for eight hours or... Yes, I am a big advocate of literally scheduling everything from your lunch to like, I schedule my gym commute in my calendar because I know how long it's basically going to take me. So yeah, I'm a huge advocate of that. So I think that's really great advice. Yeah, schedule, schedule, schedule everything you can. It's the (laughs) easiest way to like, make sure you're going to stay on top of it. Exactly. What ways can people with high functioning anxiety deal with their anxiety? So I'd say the first thing, and this kind of goes along with your last question too, but set realistic goals for yourself. I think a lot of times we, I mean, obviously like you want to think highly of yourself and like feel like you've got it all, but when you're making goals for what your day or what your week is going to look like, make sure that they're realistic. If I'm setting a goal that's going to take me 10 hours, but I'm only giving myself three hours to do it, of course, that's going to be anxiety inducing. It's going to be more than you can handle. So the big thing to remember is like, you know, you're not a superhero. You can't expect yourself to do it all. You can, however, say, okay, does this goal like feel like it's something that's manageable? And if it's not, break it down into smaller chunks. You don't have to do it all at once. Truly, I asked this question because one of my friends wanted me to ask it. Uh So she is in management and she is very successful. Uh And she works a lot. So I think it's just one of those things since she gets her work done, she is so efficient that people Mm -hmm. constantly come to her. So I would even say probably boundaries would be a good one. But I think also when you have so much work, it's really hard to set those boundaries. I don't know if you have any tips on doing that. It is hard. I mean, boundary setting in general is so difficult. But I guess the 
big thing to remember with that is when you're setting a boundary, you're not setting it for someone else. You're not setting it for your friend or your manager or whoever. You're setting that boundary for yourself. So if you're prioritizing yourself and how you're feeling and the bandwidth that you have, that boundary is set in order to protect yourself. So when we shift our mindset from being like, okay, like my life is about other people versus my life is about me, you'll start to notice, okay, like it doesn't feel as hard to set boundaries when I'm putting myself first. Mm. Um, And going along with that too, like with high functioning anxiety, like validating yourself, there's so much that people who sort of have high functioning anxiety, there's so much that you're probably doing throughout your day that you're not even taking a second to acknowledge. Like when you get a ton of work done in a day at the end of the day, do you go home and like look at yourself and you're like, hey, I'm really proud of all the things that I did today. But most of the time we end up honing in on, oh, I'm so mad at myself for the stuff that I didn't get done today. So validate yourself and remember that, you know, you are doing a good job and you're allowed to call yourself out when you are doing good. I think that is a huge thing to mention because we do tend to focus on more of the things we didn't do or the negative when we're calling ourselves out or speaking to ourselves, but just really forgetting to self-validate. Yes, totally. Are there any alternatives to prescribed anxiety medication? So I've had people tell tell me that they don't really like being on them because they make them feel like a zombie and they just don't like Mm, the way they feel. Sure. So because I'm not like a medical doctor, I don't know a ton about anxiety medication per se, but I can say there's a ton of alternatives that we work on like in a therapeutic setting. And so the big one, so I'll kind of go through a couple that are just easy. The first is exercise, which I know it's like one of those things that no one ever wants to do. But when you do it, it feels so good. It's like magic. Um, And it doesn't necessarily have to mean like, I'm going to run five miles in the morning, like even just 30 minutes of movement a day, whatever that looks like, if that's like you walking around your neighborhood, or you like going to a park or whatever movement means for you, it doesn't have to be going super hard at the gym or lifting a ton of weights, but just incorporating half an hour of movement into your day every single day that can do wonders for anxiety, especially if it's like outside. So if you're walking around outside getting some fresh air, that can also be incredible for anxiety just to change a scenery or change a pace. Another one that I'll say is helpful if you're a heavy caffeine drinker, but you also have anxiety, that is going to cause you to feel way more jittery than normal. So if you find yourself reaching for your fourth cup of coffee and it's only noon, maybe slow down on that a little bit. Obviously, speak to a doctor, see like what feels best for you and what feels doable, but tapering out caffeine usage can be helpful for anxiety. Affirmations are also great. So calming affirmations, if you feel like you're starting to panic, reminding yourself that you were safe and mindfulness practices in general. So journaling, which I absolutely love, um, meditation, guided imagery, which is sort of like visualizations. Those I feel like personally are really, really great before bed. Sometimes they just put you to sleep. So there's a ton of alternatives to medication. Medication is definitely not the only route. It can be incredible and very, very life-changing. But even if you are on medication, make sure to be incorporating non-medication-based anxiety practices. So stuff like exercise, mindfulness, um, et cetera, because anxiety medication plus sort of like more therapeutic techniques put together can really be life-changing for anxiety. So yes, I have to echo walking outside. So I feel like whenever mm-hmm. I go on a long walk outside, I it's like the most therapeutic for me. I feel like I just can clear my mind. And I don't know, like you said, there's something about walking outside that really does it for me. 
It's amazing. Yeah, there's something in the air <laughs> that'll like be. heal you. So it and we really underestimate the power of just being in fresh air. So just walk outside. If you're cooped up in your, especially if you're like working from home or if you're in the same office all day long, like it can it can just take a toll on you. So even if it's like five minutes, just walk outside, catch a breath, and then go back in and see how that changes the way that you feel. Yeah. So last summer I stayed in Montreal and it's a very walkable city so uh-huh. I would do morning walks and I'd walk in the evening and I felt like I was the most calm happiest I've <laughs> ever been and I was like oh my gosh I need to walk more but where yeah. I live currently it's just not as easy to get out and just walk to like the store because n- nothing's mm-hmm. that close so yeah yeah really I feel that amazing. I mean I live in Phoenix and Phoenix is like not really a walkable city at all like it's very you're very dependent on your car so even for people who don't live in walkable areas like just figuring out like is there somewhere in my community or near my neighborhood where I can go do that so even if that's like a park get a couple of your friends together make it a date make it something fun and you guys can go and just walk around together or um you know if you do have a neighborhood that's walkable that's awesome and worst case if you really there's like nowhere near you that you can go walk outside getting a gym membership and just like hit the treadmill and just walk because that in and of itself is going to just change your relationship with anxiety. Yes, love it. So is there a way to narrow down the things that trigger our anxiety? I know sometimes even just thinking about that can make us more anxious, but True. any tips? Yeah, um, I'd say, well, if thinking about it does make you more anxious, the big thing that I would recommend is just start by regulating yourself first. So, you know, if you're kind of thinking, okay, like I do want to narrow this down, make sure that you're in a calm environment, that you've had a good day or you feel good. Make sure you've eaten, you're hydrated, things like that, because you want to basically like almost cushion yourself so that when you are starting to think about things that are stressful, you have like coping mechanisms on hand. Obviously, as a therapist, I'm going to tell you if you want help narrowing down anxiety triggers speak to a professional like there are people out there in the world who are specifically trained to be able to help you identify some of those triggers but if you aren't in therapy or if it's something that you're a little more hesitant on start by working on self-awareness that is the biggest tip i can give you when trying to manage your triggers or trying to identify them if you don't know what they are is you've got to be able to look at yourself and say okay what are the things that upset me and then once you figure out what the things are asking yourself, why does that get under my skin? Because there is always a why. And if you can figure out why does that upset me so much, whether it's like, okay, this was something that happened in my childhood or something that happened in a past relationship or whatever the case might be, you can figure out where the anxiety is stemming from. And if you can do that, then you've got somewhere to start. Yes. So I have to echo therapy because since the last time we talked, I went and found a therapist that's a good (gasps) fit for me because I think I had mentioned that, you know, I've tried it once so she wasn't the best fit, but I found someone who's like a really great fit for me. And I do feel like it really is life-changing and it's just really helped me figure out like those kind of triggers for certain things. So that's amazing, Victoria. I'm so happy for you. (laughs) you. Thank you. Also, so I feel like when it comes to anxiety for myself, I feel like I have situational anxiety I don't even know if that's a thing Mm. to be honest because I don't really think about it unless like it's just certain circumstances that I can feel really anxious Mm -hmm. so yeah I mean I think there's a lot of people out there who like for example might be fine when they're with their friends or family but then when they are in like social situations you'll see this a lot with people like with social anxiety specifically where like being out in public is like really scary but if you're at home with your friends like you feel fine so that's very much a real thing 
But again, that's one of those things that I'm talking about when I talk about like self-awareness, figuring out like, oh, what is it about, you know, crowds, for example, that stresses me out so much and figuring out like, where does that originate from? Yeah, root causing it. I think that mm-hmm. is a really, really great tip. Totally. So what are some tips we can use to manage our anxiety and our relationship? Oof. <laughs> yeah, this one's a tough one. <laughs> when you say relationships, do you mean like dating relationships, like intimate relationships or just in general? That's a good question. So I feel like let's do in general. Okay. But I feel like they're probably a little bit worse in dating maybe, but sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know that's where everything comes to the surface. But if we're talking Talking about general like relationships, parents, partners, friends, work people, <laughs> whoever, I'd say the big tip is to sort of get ahead of it. So if you are already aware, okay, I've got anxiety, I've root caused it, like you said, I have figured out like where it's coming from, I figured out what my triggers are. If there's people in your life who you are close to, that you feel safe with or you feel safe around, being open about your triggers with them. Because if the people who are in your life are aware, then they can help you basically cope. Like if they see you starting to feel a little anxious, they can check in on you, they can ground you. And I think that open communication is helpful. It reminds me of something you were saying earlier. If people don't know then it's very hard for them to help because they might not be able, they might not see what's going on or they might react too slow because they're just unaware of anything happening with you. So if there's a couple people in your life who you feel are like safe and trusted people, if you can tell them, hey, this is something that makes me feel a little bit anxious, just a heads up, don't know if anything's going to happen, but I, I want you to know, then you know, hey, I've got someone in my corner. Yeah, I love that you mentioned someone that you feel safe with because I think that's mm-hmm. also important too because just the last thing you want someone to do is like to use that against you. So I think it's important to totally. make sure it's someone who's safe and not think you have to tell everyone. Yes, exactly. And like you definitely shouldn't feel like it's something that you have to tell everyone. You don't want to like overshare there. But if it's a close relationship and it feels like someone that, hey, you know, I can give them this trusted information and they're going to help me with mm, it. Yeah, That's a big that's a big green flag. <laughs> yes, I love a green flag. <laughs> okay, I think another thing that really shows up in relationships are our attachment styles. Yes. So I want to dive into that. And I also find them so interesting. So can you walk us through the different types of attachment styles? Yes. So I love attachment theory. Um, And so if you guys are listening and you haven't heard of it before, I'll try to kind of break this down a little bit. Um. There are four different attachment styles. The first is secure attachment. The second is anxious attachment. The third is avoidant attachment. And the last is disorganized attachment. So when we think about attachment, the easiest way to think about it is you want to think about it sort of like on a graph almost where the x-axis is avoidance and the y-axis is anxiety. So you're constantly navigating between essentially like what is my avoidance level like in my relationships and what is my anxiety level like in my relationships? So for example, let's say if I have low anxiety in my relationships and I also have low avoidance, I'm not afraid to say something. (laughs) That means that I've got a positive idea of myself and I have a positive idea of the people that I'm in relationships with. So that would lead me to have a secure attachment style. Basically, like I'm not scared to bring things up to you when I need to, but I also don't really feel anxious about it because I know that it doesn't have anything to do with me. And I know that I can bring this up 
to someone that I care about. Another example is say you have high avoidance, you're more likely to avoid difficult conversations or difficult emotions, but you have low anxiety. So you're not like necessarily worrying about it or stressing about it (laughs) in your day-to-day life. You would have an avoidant attachment style. You have a more negative model of other people, but you have a positive model of yourself. So I can kind of break those down a little bit more. Is that what you were looking for? Yes, I actually I did like those examples. My thought that I was thinking was what if you are high on both? Was that one? What what was that one? Yes. So if you have high avoidance and high anxiety, that would mean that you fall under the disorganized attachment style. So you have both a negative model of yourself because of the high anxiety, as well as negative model of others, which would be that high avoidance. So that would be disorganized, which I'll kind of explain this a little bit more here in a sec. But essentially, it's a blend of the anxious and the avoidant types. Lastly, I guess on this little spectrum that we're talking about is the anxious attachment style. And that is someone who has low avoidance, so a positive model of other people, but they have high anxiety. So that's where you'll see the negative model of self. So negative internal perspective. Wow. I've never heard of that kind of example with the X and Y axis. And just, I feel like that is really helpful. The easiest way to remember it for me. So that's always like what I try to explain it with. I think that is the easiest way. But if you could go into a little bit of the descriptions of each and kind of what attributes they have. Yeah, for sure. So secure attachment is very much like the, it's the golden child of the attachment cells. It's what ideally we want to work toward. But someone with a secure attachment style is able to form close, loving, secure (laughs) relationships with other people. A hallmark of this type is they find themselves able to trust other people fairly easily. And they're also okay with being trusted. They don't feel like they have to put as much of a wall up. They can become close to other people fairly easily. They don't feel like it takes a super long time. And they don't feel like they're just diving into relationships. Um, People with secure attachment, they are okay with depending on other people. And they're okay with other people depending on them. They're not scared of intimacy but they're also able to have time away from their partners or their friends or whoever without feeling a sense of abandonment. So they don't feel like, oh my God, my partner's just been away all day. They don't care about me. They don't love me. Instead, they're like, oh, my partner's you know, doing their own thing today. That's so awesome that they're taking some time to develop their relationship with themselves. So people who are securely attached, they find that they are able to have, again, like I said, that positive model of other people. They trust others and they have that positive model of themselves so they're able to trust themselves so part of me wants to know how many people actually have a secure attachment i feel like that it seems kind of hard to get like you just really would have to do a lot of the work yes totally um so they say that generally speaking the research shows right now i believe that about 50 percent of people have a secure attachment style it's just some one of those things too that i think you know we could definitely do more research on and figure out but generally speaking they'll say about half the population has a secure attachment style and a lot of that again is like the way that you were raised the families that you grew up in that um, affects attachment a lot so and does it also waver depending on who you're actually in a relationship with like some people would make you feel more secure in your attachment oh totally yeah 
um, I think that, you know, typically, so you have one attachment style and that is the one that you have because it's just based off of your relationship with your caregivers. So the good thing about attachment, it's not like you're doomed. If you have one style that's you're doomed to that style forever, you can always work towards becoming securely attached. But people who have an anxious attachment style aren't just going to wake up one day and be avoidant. You can have like avoidant tendencies here and there, but for the most part, you have that one attachment style. And then ideally, we're all working towards becoming securely attached. That's like, hopefully, you know, what everyone wants. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the other attachment style, so I kind of talked a little bit about secure attachment, but anxious attachment um, is, I believe, I want to say it's a... (sighs) a toss up. I can't remember off the top of my head. I want to say it's the next most common attachment I can style. believe that, honestly. I could be wrong. So definitely double check facts on that. But, <laughs> but it's either the second or the third most common for sure. And anxious attachment style is, it's very much, it's an insecure attachment style that has a lot to do with this fear of abandonment. So people with an anxious attachment style, they tend to have a lot more fear in their relationships, a lot more insecurity. So this is why anxious attachment is sort of associated with this like idea of, oh my God, like they're so needy. They're so clingy. And they sometimes unfortunately do engage in behaviors that are typical of like neediness or clinginess. But I just don't like to use those terms like in practice, but it is a good way to kind of think about like when we're thinking about someone who is like stereotypically anxiously attached, that's sort of what you'll see is like, oh God, like he didn't call me today or (laughs) or he didn't call me quick enough. He didn't text me back quick enough. This is the person who you'll kind of see like constantly checking their phone to see like, did my partner text me back? This is all the, so the person who's like going to be checking their partner's location all the time. Where are they? What are they doing? Who oh, are they man. with? Um, no. So obviously okay. that exists on a spectrum too. Like not everyone with anxious attachment is going to be so, so anxiously attached, but those are sort of the extremes. Yeah. That seems really challenging just like on your mental. Are there, yeah. so like if, you're someone who's more anxiously attached and you realize you want to check up on your partner a lot or just text them or mm-hmm. get a lot of anxiety when you don't hear from them at certain periods of time. Like, is there something that those people can do to help? I guess they can use a breath work, but I don't know if there's anything else they can do just to like not give into that. I can imagine it's really hard though. Sure. Yeah. I Well, I think breath work and, and coping skills like that are sort of like surface level coping skills in the moment for sure. Like if you find yourself anxious because your partner hasn't texted you back, put your phone away, <laughs> flip it over, <laughs> go leave it to charge or something and walk away and do some breath work for sure. But in the long term, if you're trying to heal attachment, working on stuff that makes you or like puts you in the direction of becoming more securely attached. And part of that is exploring like, why does that bug me so much. So for example, if we're working with someone who is anxiously attached, maybe is constantly worried that their partner's off doing something else, or, you know, what are they doing? Who are they with? Why aren't they texting me back? Asking yourself, like, what does that mean to you? If he doesn't text you back quick enough, what does that mean? So the person can be like, oh, well, it means that he doesn't love me. Okay, why are we associating like the speed that someone texts you back with how much they love you? And by doing work like that, where you're kind of diving in a little bit deeper and trying to figure out like the meaning behind why this behavior stresses you out so much, then you can kind of start working towards, okay, well, what else in the relationship shows me that my partner loves me? Or what other signs can I look for? that make me feel reassured, make me feel like calm, as opposed to just focusing on things that maybe are more trivial 
essentially working to heal that anxiety or that anxious attachment. Yeah. And that has, I don't know, that's kind of making me think like, do you think people have trouble identifying anxiety versus like a gut intuition? Oh my gosh. Yes. That's like the hardest thing too, is I think when you are naturally anxious or you've dealt with anxiety for a long time, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about like validating yourself. I think so often we invalidate our intuition, right? Where we're like, oh, it's just, it's just me being anxious, like as you or the other way around where maybe it is intuition, but you're so unused to listening to your intuition that you just you assume it's like no big deal. But one of the things that I've heard a lot when it comes to deciphering between anxiety and intuition is that anxiety is usually panicked. It's usually loud. It's usually something that gets your heart racing. Whereas intuition is a thought that tends to be very calm. It tends to be in the gut it tends to be something that you know deep down as opposed to anxiety, which is usually more thoughts that are like what if type thoughts, right? What if he's doing this? What if he's doing that? What if he doesn't care about you anymore? What if he doesn't love you anymore? Versus intuition, which might be a little calmer. Ooh, I love the way you explain that because I agree. So I feel like I'm someone who's very in tune with my intuition. Literally, Mm -hmm. I have found out some things. Um, Mm -hmm. Typically, I always find out things because I listen to my intuition and I trust it. But I do agree with you. Like it is more calm. I know one time I had this really intense intuition feeling and I in my mind because I think like you said a lot of times we can invalidate it I was like oh my gosh Mm -hmm. you're just being insecure but the thing was it wasn't the what ifs it was just this deep sense of something's not right and then like it kept occurring like over the whole two weeks and I was like okay it's my intuition so I like the way you describe like there really is a difference when you like like when you stop to really analyze what that feeling feels like for sure and I think that's I love the example that you because I think that's also where like working on yourself, that's why it's so important. Because if you're someone that hasn't done the work, if you're someone that doesn't listen to yourself and listen to your body and listen to your needs, like you are not going to be able to tell the difference between anxiety and intuition because it feels the same. It's not until you start like honing in on the differences between those two and Basically, if you've got to learn how to trust yourself a little bit. You've got to learn how to trust yourself more than everything else that's going on around you. So if you're prioritizing yourself, if you're able to look at your life and say, okay, these are things that I'm doing for me, then you're going to be more likely when that intuition feeling comes in, you're going to be like, oh, I recognize this. I know this because I felt it before. Yes. And I saw this saying that I literally live by now and it the person said that we have three brains, our head, our heart, and our gut, and our gut is the most Ooh. right. And I feel at least in my life that that's been the most accurate. That's been my gut. I love that. Yeah, that's a question I ask all the time in session where, you know, clients will say stuff and I'm like, "Well, what does your gut tell you?" Cuz it's Ooh. a very different feeling cuz our mind tells us one thing, our heart tells us another thing, but you're absolutely right. Like our gut tells us a third thing. And And you don't make rash decisions based off of it, but just listen to it as if it's just another voice in the room. It's just another opinion that you need to take into consideration, but don't pretend like it's not trying to tell you something. Don't shut it down. Oh, love that. Okay. So avoidant. Yes. Avoidant. Avoidant attachment. So avoidant attachment is also an insecure attachment style, whereas anxious attachment tends to be more marked by that fear of abandonment. Avoidant attachment, you'll kind of see it marked by more of a fear of intimacy. So these are people who usually typically tend to have a harder time getting close to other people. They have a harder time trusting other people. And a lot of this is because they 
they're sort of the lone wolf. So these are people who are like, I've got my back. I don't need anyone else to. So there's a certain part of most avoidantly attached people that not only is it like, oh, I don't need anyone else to take care of me. It's I don't believe that anyone else can take care of me. And so as a result, they tend to distance themselves from their partners. Um, These are people who, again, on the extreme end of this, the stereotypical version, this is the person who's emotionally unavailable. This is the person that doesn't (laughs) doesn't text you back. This is the person that doesn't reach out. This is the person that seems super nonchalant. People with avoidant attachment also on the extreme end tend to be more scared of like commitment. They enjoy being independent. They enjoy kind of doing their own thing. And Obviously, when you're in an intimate relationship or intimate partnership, that can be really difficult because it's one of those things that you inherently need to incorporate another person in. So for a lot of avoidantly attached people, that's where they find themselves having a tough time because their partners will be like, hey, you're like putting a lot of distance between us. And they're like, well, I don't care. You can take it or leave it. So that is so interesting. So I only say that because I was talking to this person and they were uh-huh. basically saying like, yeah, I have commitment issues, but they are in a relationship. Uh-huh. They're acknowledging it. But I just, I'm like, okay, you know, you have commitment issues, but like, how is that sure. playing out in your relationship? And they're kind of just like, yeah, I have commitment issues, <laughs> but yeah. my girlfriend's happy. I'm like, okay, that is interesting. Yeah. That is interesting. I mean, it's one of those things, again, like if you struggle with commitment, it's not like one of those things that's going to doom you. You can still be in a relationship, but you have have to be able to ask yourself why like why is committing to someone why does that feel so scary is it because you feel like they're gonna want too much from you or is it because you're scared that you're gonna have to give up your independence what does that mean about you like there's so much to explore there so I think when we think about commitment issues we just say oh my god like that person has commitment issues and it's just sort of like a blanket statement but there's so much underneath that that is worth exploring, especially if you're someone who's trying to be better about that. So if you find yourself like in a relationship, but you know, like you struggle with commitment a little bit, get ahead of that. Start figuring out like, where does that stem from so that it doesn't have such a negative impact on the relationship? Yes, I agree. I think that is really important. But I think, you know, obviously, the first step is knowing it once you know it just dig deeper and root cause. Totally. And knowing it, but then also like acknowledging that you can do better. So you know Mm. better, do better. (laughs) And so if you know that, hey, this is something that if I, again, to use this again as an example, but if I have commitment issues and I know that that has come up in previous relationships and I'm entering a new relationship, go ahead and assume that that pattern is going to show up again in this new relationship. If it's worth it to you, if this is something that you want to see through and this is a person you want to be with, love them enough to say, okay, well, I'm going to look at myself and the unhealthy patterns that I engage in as a way to honor the person that I'm with now. Ooh, I like that. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. Yeah. Okay. So disorganized. Disorganized. So disorganized is sometimes also called fearful avoidant attachment. And that name, if you look at it, it kind of gives away like how disorganized people will kind of interact with their partners. But essentially, it's a combination, like I said, of both anxious and avoidant attachment styles. So the easiest way that I always remember disorganized attachment is people who tend to be more push-pull. So these are people who desperately crave intimacy 
intimacy. Like they really love the idea of being in a relationship and having your person. And it sounds all nice and amazing, like in theory, but when they have the opportunity to have that intimacy or that closeness with someone, it can feel so scary that they will avoid it no matter what. Like they will reject it immediately because they're scared of it. It's the very thing that they want so bad is also the thing that they fear the most, which can be so hard, especially when you are trying to be in relationships. So they want to feel loved. That is very much a piece of it, similar to the anxious type, but they are scared to trust and open up and let people in. So that's where their avoidant attachment piece comes in. And so oftentimes people with disorganized attachment styles can feel all over the place or feel chaotic because they're like a pendulum. They're constantly swinging back and forth between feeling really avoidant and feeling really anxious. And it can be incredibly, incredibly taxing. So it is also the most rare of the attachment styles. It's the least common. And it's also the newest attachment style. It's like the last one that they discovered. So there is you know, less research on it and stuff. So that can be a little difficult too, especially for individuals who are trying to figure out more about their attachment style. But luckily, over time, there's been so much new stuff that we figured out about how disorganized individuals interact with partners in relationships. So if you find yourself swinging between anxious and avoidant a lot, maybe take a look and kind of see if you know, the disorganized type resonates with you. And so keep in mind, like, do I feel highly anxious and highly avoidant? Yeah. And like you said, that does sound incredibly hard. Are there tips that you use with your clients to help them to, I don't know, I guess, ways that they can try to have that healthy relationship while having that attachment? Or do they need to try to get closer to secure first? Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's definitely not one of those. Th- and honestly, like sometimes relationships in and of themselves, depending on the person that you're with, and their attachment style, like they can be incredibly healing, right? Because if you mm-hmm. are a person with one of the three insecure styles, and you're dating someone with a really secure attachment, like they can model secure attachment for you. And that can sometimes be comforting, and it can push you towards secure attachment. So yeah, I want to make that super clear. If you're someone who falls into either anxious, avoidant or disorganized, do not feel like, okay, well, now I can't be in a relationship. As long as you are working towards, and it doesn't have to be in big ways, it can be in small ways too, but as long as you're working towards secure attachment in some way, you can absolutely be in really good, healthy relationships. But you have to be able to acknowledge there's stuff that I do that is not healthy. (laughs) There are ways that I interact with this relationship that is not healthy. And then when given the opportunity with your partners, make sure that you're holding yourself accountable and make sure that you are working towards repairing those difficult moments. Yeah, I I love that you mentioned that because you're right. I didn't even consider the fact that if you're dating someone with a secure attachment, that that, like you said, they can model that for you and that can help you Mm -hmm. lean more into the secure attachment. So I think that is a really great point to mention. Yeah. And I've seen this a lot on the internet recently too. And I think it's just like such a great question to stop and ask yourself. But um, when you find yourself, if you are one of the insecurely attached types, if you find yourself sort of engaging in behavior that's typical of your type, like say if you're avoidant and you're ghosting someone or if you're anxious and you're blowing up someone's phone, ask yourself, okay, I'm going to pause for a sec. And if I was securely attached or if this was a securely attached person, what would their 
response be? What would someone who is securely attached do in this situation? And kind of compare that to what you might be doing in the moment and see if that allows you to sort of zoom out and take a moment to be like, okay, maybe this is not the most healthy response to whatever it is that's going on. That is such a hot tip. So I've also seen similar things on TikTok. I know this Mm -hmm. one girl, she was saying that she creates this alter ego of this woman who's just really secure and shows up in a certain way. And then so when she is in relationship, she asks herself like, okay, what would say her name is Jordan? What would Jordan do in the situation versus what I would do? And she goes with what Jordan will do. And she said that that has helped her like tremendously in her relationship. For sure. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Even being able to, because sometimes it does, it takes, you know, zooming out of ourselves and thinking about it as if it's almost like an outside person or like you, you, like your friend said, like an alter ego. Like, I love that. That's a great way to think about it. Yes. So if we heard all the descriptions of each attachment style and we're still unsure which one we have, how can we go about figuring that out? Are there like tests, quizzes, or questions yes. we can ask ourselves? Totally. So I'll give you a couple questions you can just ask yourself like off the top of your head. And these questions, I guess, aren't so much to determine which type you are, but it's sort of, do I fall under secure attachment or do I fall under insecure attachment? So the big thing that I'd say, take a second to ask yourself is, A, do I struggle to trust those that are close to me? A second question I'd ask myself is, do I feel like relatively comfortable with having other people depend on me slash am I comfortable depending on other people? And lastly is, do I feel like I have a fear of abandonment? Do I feel like people are going to leave me? So if you if you answer those questions and you find yourself saying, yeah, I do struggle to trust people or yes, I do worry about being abandoned. And then I also have a hard time like relying on people around me, then it might be indicative of you having an insecure attachment style. So once you figure that out, if you want to figure out, okay, well, what style do I fall under? Obviously, like you can kind of, you literally Google attachment style. There's probably a billion articles out there that you can kind of look at typical traits. We covered some of those in today's episode. So like with anxious, you're going to be more clinging, you're going to be reaching out more avoidant, you're going to be doing more of the pushing away, disorganized, you might be swinging between both of them. But if there's a quiz that you want to take, one of the ones that I use all the time with my clients is Dr. Diane Poole Heller. She has an incredible attachment quiz online. It's free. It's just a couple questions um, on a Likert scale. So super, super easy to answer. Probably takes about like 10 minutes. And they'll ask you for your email and then they'll email you your results. And what's cool about her test that I love is that it doesn't just tell you, oh, you're anxious or, oh, you're disorganized. It'll give it to you on a pie chart. So you can kind of see, okay, I am mostly secure, but then maybe my next most common tendency, even though I might be technically a secure attachment style, I have a lot of avoidant tendencies or I have a lot of anxious tendencies. So when my clients like come back and they're like, oh, I scored secure, I, I'm like, okay, that's awesome. I'm like, let's look at the next biggest slice of the pie because that's really what interests me because that's where you'll kind of see more of those unhealthy relationship habits uh, start to come up. Ooh, so I'm interested. I'm going to take that quiz. I'm going to make sure that we link that in 
in the show notes for this because I think that's yes. huge. Like you said, even if you get secure, like focusing on the next one is also because I'm going to be honest, if I got secure, I'd be like, oh, I'm secure. And I probably wouldn't look yeah. further. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I feel like I have that happen all the time where people come and be like, look, I'm secure. I'm all good. I'm healed. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, so you ghost people. So did avoidant come up as the next biggest one? Oh, look at that. And so definitely taking a look at what comes up next, because obviously when we're at our best, we're going to be operating at our best. We're, you know, when we're not stressed, when everything's good with our jobs, everything's good with our relationships, we, we are the best versions of ourselves. But then when stuff gets stressful or stuff gets hard, that's when we're going to revert back to our unhealthy tendencies. So even if you're scoring secure, if your unhealthy tendency is, say, for example, avoidant, then that's really where you're going to notice avoidant tendencies happening. So yeah, so looking at that next biggest slice of the pie is, is key. So that is part one of the interview that I did with Nina. I decided to split Nina's episode into two because it is a really long one, but a really, really good one. So I definitely want to make sure I give you all the full interview. So the second part will air next week. But in the meantime, if you don't know your attachment style, I encourage you to take the quiz. I have it linked in the show notes so that we can all figure out what our attachment style is because that is the start. Once you figure out if you have a secure or one of the insecure attachment styles, then we will be able to put in the work to become more secure so that we can have those healthier relationships. All right, until next week. Bye guys. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode. If you really loved the episode and you felt like it resonated with you, be sure to share the love and share the episode with a friend. Also, if you could take a minute and head to the review section wherever you listen to your podcast and leave me a review, letting me know what you're loving about these episodes and which topics you want to hear next. That way, I can make sure that I continue creating episodes that you love. Also, make sure you hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. Until next week, bye, Grown Girl Gang.